If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Father, we have so much to look forward to that your word speaks to the relevancy of life, to where we have to flesh out our existence each day for the cause of Christ. We know some who are here today don't really know what that means, and we're so thankful that in your providence you brought them, some within the internet, some within the radio, so many different vehicles that you use. We pray you would speak to each and every heart, to those who are lost, that today would be a turning point. To those who have met Christ, that we might love him more because of our exposure to truth. Thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, that it's your renewing agent to make us more like Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you've saved us from the very penalty of sin that you are in the process of saving us from the power of sin. You said that's called sanctification. So sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray that with the Lord Jesus. But we look forward to that blessed day when our salvation will be complete, when in the twinkling of an eye, this mortality will put on immortality, this perishable will have put on the imperishable. But until that day comes, help us to be faithful servants walking with Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. If you are new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been in a verse-by-verse exposition of what the Scripture describes as prophecy. We're looking at God's prophetic schedule. Typically, I will do that with a book of the Bible. I'll start with a book and go through every chapter, every verse. Right now, we're doing that with various sections of the Bible. So it's not really topical, as some people describe a topical sermon. It's still exegetical, but we are focusing on a specific topic, namely God's prophetic schedule. We began this series with the rapture of the church and the rebirth of Israel. And Israel's rebirth is one of the greatest signs that God has given in Scripture. Because he said at the end of time, he would bring Israel back into the land and reestablish them as a nation. Now, I suppose God could have done that at 1000 AD, raptured the church, and then began that process of gathering Israel from across the world. But he waited nearly two millennia to do what we are witnessing today. And that's important because, again, that happens at the end of time. And so while the rapture of the church is a signless event, it could happen at any moment. The second coming that concerns and is built around the nation of Israel is a prophetically driven event. And so when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you should be alert that the rapture is that much closer. But what's so sad today is that prophecy, which is a major theme in Scripture, is being neglected by evangelicals. Someone said to me, oh, you're almost done with this series. I'm just loving it, and I hate for you to quit. Look, you can never quit preaching on prophecy, because if you take a book of the Bible, every book in the Scripture contains prophecy as it relates to the return of Jesus. A third of the Scripture 
is prophetic in nature. But some pulpits sometimes are a little bit hesitant or reluctant because they don't want to be associated with charlatans and misguided zealots and certainly a number of false cults that use Bible prophecy to draw people in. But you cannot not preach the prophecy because God has called a pastor to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. And if anything, because this is a subject that is virtually ignored in our day, all the more reason to help God's people understand it. Because if you understand prophecy rightly, it will change your life. It's not given to make us smarter sinners. It's given to make us more like Jesus. And with virtually every single passage in the New Testament that deals with God's prophetic schedule, there's an accompanying command as to how we should live. So we don't need to go to some psychic. We don't need to go to some lady with a crystal ball to tell us what the future is. We can go to God's holy and inspired word. Listen to what God said. He said, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God is interested in declaring his plans to us. And so you can see we are at that section in the series where we are addressing the issue of biblical tour of heaven. And I say biblical because there are so many books that have come out in the last decade or so on heaven. For instance, Colton Burbo, he's featured in the book, Heaven is for Real. Or David Taylor is the author of a book, My Trip to Heaven. Two books giving vivid descriptions of heaven, just filled, riddled with error. But sadly, most Christians today, because they don't know the Bible, can't even see the error. Then, of course, there's the book that was a bestseller, made some people some millionaires, not just the publishers, but the authors. The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. And it's the imaginative description of a six-year-old boy who died supposedly on the operating table, though it was not true death because you are appointed to die just once and then comes the judgment. Your heart may stop, but it's not death until the spirit departs from the body. And he came back and he gave a vivid description of what he saw. And his parents through Lifeway books that has lost all integrity in terms of being a Christian publisher In the flyleaf of that book, they write, read this book because it is a supernatural encounter that will give you new insights on heaven, angels, and hearing the voice of God. Three years ago, uh, the young man, Alex Malarkey, now 21 years of age, became a believer. And he wrote these words to Tyndale, publishers who, again, they marketed it through Lifeway. In his letter to Lifeway Books, he wrote, please forgive my brevity, but I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. When I made the claims, I had never read the Bible. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. 
The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for your sins that you can be forgiven. We must not learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. And indeed, it was a lot of malarkey, but most people, again, don't know the Bible to see the difference. And so, sadly, Christian publishers are promoting books that go beyond what Scripture warns. They are an error of what God writes at the end of the Bible. Listen to what Jesus said. He was having an encounter with a man by the name of Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. There was approximately 6,000 Pharisees who walked on the earth when Jesus was here. He was a leader of the Pharisees, and he was helping him to understand how to go to heaven. And Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now again, in the context, he's helping Nicodemus to understand his authority and the validity of why he can explain to Nicodemus how a man gets into heaven through the second birth. In essence, he's saying, listen, none of your earthly teachers can really teach you about heaven because none of them have been there. I've come from heaven. I've brought from real life testimony as the Son of God an explanation of how you get to script, how you get into heaven. A paraphrased translation paraphrased that verse by saying, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. So Nicodemus, I can uniquely tell you about how to have this second birth. Even the Apostle Paul, when he is given a glimpse of heaven, God doesn't allow him to share it unlike so many of these writers today. And of course, when an apostle writes about heaven, they write with absolute authority, but there are no apostles today. To have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ, you had to have been selected by him, and if that was true, you would have the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. So all of these books, please understand, all of these books are in violation of Revelation 22, 19 where they are adding to Scripture or subtracting from it. So I hope to begin this morning a biblical tour of heaven. Let's start reading the first eight verses, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone 
which is the second death. Now, if you're new, there's a note-taking outline there in your bulletin. If you're live streaming, there's a place where you can print it out. And there are six characteristics of this place we call heaven that I want us to discern. We're going to use as our launching pad, Revelation 21, but we'll look at a number of passages from the Word of God. Six characteristics, six kinds of images that should come to your mind when you think about heaven. Number one there, heaven is a permanent place. Heaven is described as a permanent place. We read here in the opening verse of chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. So it begins with the words, then I saw, a phrase used throughout the revelation when John wants to signal a new section. And so here he leaves the lake of fire at the end of chapter 20, 11 through 15, and he begins a new section by describing this new heaven and this new earth. So put it together chronologically. The rapture of the church is the next event that will take place. Nothing has to happen for that to come. And that's why the New Testament speaks of the imminent return of Christ. Those who deny a pre-tribulational rapture cannot speak of an imminent return. All kinds of things have to happen before Jesus can come back. Not true. He can come today for the church. After the church is removed, God will resume his program with Israel. That seven-plus-year period known as the Great Tribulation period unfolds. Briefly after the tribulation, Christ physically comes back to the earth. He rules and reigns for a thousand years. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the end of the thousand-year reign, we will see heaven and earth flee because God will destroy it. A new heaven and a new earth will create, be created. But between the millennial reign and the new heaven and the new earth, there's what we studied last time, the great white throne judgment. And so this world has been ruined by sin. It's been soiled by sin. It's been filled with rebellion and unrighteousness. And so a new creation is absolutely essential. And what he's describing here in verse 1 is not some renovated, fixed-up earth. In fact, this current earth that we're sitting on this morning is going to be obliterated. Now, sometimes verses like Matthew 19, 28 are used to describe a fixer-upper program. And typically, people who deny that there is a literal reign of Christ on the earth will use a verse like this. Let me read it to you. And Jesus said to them, to them who? To them, the 12 apostles. Truly I say to you that you, the 12, who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this verse has nothing to do with the eternal state. It has everything to do with the coming regenerated earth. And indeed, if you were here for the message on the millennium, God is going to rejuvenate this earth. Men will live upwards of a thousand years. The lion will lay down with the, with the, with the lamb, and, and uh, the, the baby will play next to the cobra's nest and not be harmed. And so that's the time frame when Jesus sits on his throne. That's not what John is speaking of. Again in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This is totally new. It's not the current heaven and earth, and it's supported by the statement here, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
So sometimes if you're not sure about someone's explanation or your own conclusion that you've come to concerning some doctrinal truth, let the Scripture interpret Scripture. Look for more Scripture that speaks to that subject. Uh, And by the way, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament prophets speak of a brand new earth that is coming. Listen to these words from Psalm 102. Of old you founded the earth, the psalmist writes. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then the psalmist says, even they will perish, but you, the Lord, you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. The Lord Jesus, by the way, also made it crystal clear that the current planet we are on is going to be gone. Listen to these words from Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. So God tells us it's going to pass away. But while it passes away, nonetheless, my words will not pass away. So he's drawing a contrast about the infallibility and the enduring nature of truth. The earth you're on is going to pass away, but my word will abide forever. Or listen to these words in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter plainly wrote, the heavens will pass, <clears throat> will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. And so what should we be doing? We should be looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. We're not talking about a remake. We're talking about a total meltdown. This is indeed global warming at at its peak. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. John and Peter used the Greek word kainos to modify earth and heaven. A new earth, a kainos earth, a kainos heaven. And the word means not just new in kind, but new in time. There are different words for new in the Greek New Testament. This word, kainos, means new in time, new in kind. A brand new spanking earth and heavens in which righteousness dwells. Now, when you think about heaven, remember it's used in three ways in the Bible. There's the first heaven, the atmosphere that you're breathing, the blue sky that you look up at. There's a second heaven that's outer space where you see the night sky and the stars and the moon and the various planets at times. And then there's the third heaven that Paul writes about, the very place where God himself dwells. So the first heaven you see by day, the second heaven you see by night, but the third heaven you see by faith because God has revealed truth to us about this third heaven. Now, there are numerous passages in the Bible that speak of this new heaven, this new blue sky, this new night sky, this new planetary universe, but it's distinctly different from the third heaven, the place where God is dwelling together. So at the second coming of Christ, after the thousand-year reign, it's going to be followed by a new heaven and a new earth. And John said, I saw heaven and earth flee. Why? Because it's gone. It's melted down. And he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And of course, that's the place, this new heaven and the new earth, that we are going to spend eternity in. It's not where your loved ones are today, obviously. It hasn't happened yet. They are in the Father's house. They are in the New Jerusalem. 
And so here in Revelation 21, he's giving us a picture of these future events. For the first heaven and the earth fled away, there's no longer any sea. So it's not surprising that there's not a huge amount of information concerning this coming new heaven and this new earth. Because we don't need to know but a limited amount at this time. But God gives a plethora of information about the place where your loved ones are this morning that knew Jesus. We do know, according to this verse, that in this new heaven and new earth, notice, there's no longer any sea. Now, again, sometimes you will read these books on heaven, and they're taking passages that deal with the millennial reign of the Messiah that have nothing to do with this new heaven and this new earth. For instance, Isaiah speaks of a sea. We call it the Dead Sea. It's also called the Salt Sea. It's dead because there's no life in it. And someday it will be fresh. Men will be able to fish in it. And he's describing that time during the millennial reign of the Messiah, where if a man lives just to be 100 years old, he'll be considered cursed. There's death in the millennium if you are here for that message. And so again, it's important that we picture this the way God describes it and that we don't blur these truths. There's no longer any sea. Now, that's important. Think about the world that we live in. Uh, approximately three-fourths of the world is covered by salt water. And that's the context. This is the nature of this word sea. He's not describing freshwater lakes and rivers and streams. You have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. But he's describing the saltwater earth that we live on. It's like an antiseptic. It's the solution that God uses to purge and to cleanse all the pollutants that are poured into it and through that process where fresh water comes. There's no longer a sea. Again, it doesn't mean there's no fresh water bodies. In fact, if you were with us in this series, we took a glance earlier at Revelation chapter 4 where you see God on his throne sitting by a sea of glass and he describes this river and obviously that river is cascading somewhere. So it doesn't mean there's no freshwater lakes or freshwater beaches. Uh, for that matter, it doesn't mean there's no waves. If God wants to create waves with no moon, he can certainly do that. He is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. But what I want you to see is that this is distinctly different. This is not some fix-up planet. This is a very different planet that he is describing. It's a brand new heaven and a new earth. There's no sun, the scripture says of it. In Revelation 21, 23, there's no moon. And I suppose by implication, I take it there's no stars. No landmarks whatever that are similar to the planet that we're sitting on today. And it's a real place. This is not just some eternal retirement home. This is a place where we will do some very, very important things. So it's Unlike this world that's passing away, it's permanent. It's permanent. Heaven is a permanent place. Secondly, there in your outline, heaven is a prepared place. Heaven is a prepared place. Look now, if you will, at verse 2 of Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, if you have some loved ones that knew Jesus as their personal Savior, this is where they are. They are in the New Jerusalem. They are in the place that's described as the third heaven. There's a number of names that are given to describe this place. For instance, in John 14, Jesus speaks of the Father's house. 
or as we just read from 2 Corinthians 12, the third heaven, the place of God's throne. It's described in the Revelation in 2 Corinthians and in Luke as the paradise of God. So there's the Old Testament paradise, but then there's the new covenant paradise. The name continues forward. It's called the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of God within you. There's the kingdom of God on earth, but there's the kingdom of God where God himself dwells. It's also called the kingdom of Christ. It's called heaven in scripture. That's the most popular term that most of us know. It's called the New Jerusalem here and in Revelation 3, and it's also called the Holy City. So it's seen by John as coming down out of heaven and literally becoming the capital city of this eternal state, this new heaven and this new earth. Most of us at some time or another have sung that hymn, This Is My Father's World. It was written by a pastor. Maltby Babcock, uh, we read the uh, final verse in that hymn, which is the third verse in our hymnals. It was actually the 15th verse in his song. He was a long-winded preacher and hymn writer. I love the guy. Uh, this is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be one. Many times we don't recognize what we're singing, but if you know the man's theology, he was premillennial, and he believed there was coming a time when heaven and earth would be brought together based on Revelation chapter 21. And so it's described here in verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God made ready. Now, the Greek verb, etoimazo, made ready, is sometimes translated to prepare because that's what it is. It's a preparation. Jesus said, I go and prepare, etoimazo, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where you are, uh, where I am, you may be also. In describing this coming city, the writer of the Hebrews said in Hebrews 11 that the Old Testament saints were desiring a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that interesting? There's a connection between looking into the future, setting your eyes on the things above and God not being ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because if you understand Bible prophecy correctly, the one who has his hope focused on this purifies himself. So God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared, at Toimazo, a city for them. So you know if God has prepared a city, known as heaven, known as paradise, known as my Father's house, known as the third heaven, known as the new Jerusalem, it has to be spectacular. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready. So the finishing touches, somehow there's going to be a final preparation as it descends out of heaven, made ready to sit on this new earth. And then we'll be able to sing the 15th stanza as a reality. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied in earth and heaven will be won. And so, sadly, sometimes when Christians, the average Christian, think about heaven, they only think of it as a place, well, you know, it's a good place, we'll all be happy there. But most have never really considered the implications of this new heaven and this new earth. 
It's brand new. It's spanking brand new. Again, it's called the New Jerusalem. It's called the Golden City. Sometimes we refer to Jerusalem as the Eternal City, and rightly so, because while the current Jerusalem that you may visit will someday be obliterated, the name and the city of Jerusalem, which is viewed in Scripture as the center of the earth, will literally sit on a brand new earth. And so we're going to experience in the capital city. So again, people think of, well, the Father's house, but that's just the capital city of a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, the holy city, New Jerusalem. Notice, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. We might call it downtown heaven. This is just the capital city. This is just what your loved ones who are at home with the Lord, they're just experiencing a smidgen of what God has for us. And one of the reasons God, again, spends two chapters on unfolding the new Jerusalem and helping us to get a picture of its splendor is, again, it's a reflection of the new heaven and the new earth that will also be glorious. This first prophecy of it descending is given by Jesus He speaks to seven churches, and when he writes to the church at Philadelphia, he instructs them about the city of my God, uh, Revelation 3.12, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So the fact that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven tells you it's already in existence. And that helps you to connect the dots between the Father's house and all these other terms that are used. Again, in verse 2, I saw the new, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You ought to circle that word holy. It becomes very important to John, as we'll see, before this section of Scripture is over. So right now, the Father's house, right now, the New Jerusalem, right now, heaven, it just includes heaven but someday it's gonna get a whole lot bigger. Now, sometimes people, they think about heaven and they think of this dreamy place and just sitting on clouds and people playing harps and they have all these false views based on cartoons and other things about what heaven is like. And some secretly, I'm not sure, you know, I I mean, I wanna go to heaven obviously and I wanna see Jesus, but we're going to have one big worship service. Well, what will we have done after a million years and we've sung through the hymnal mat 100,000 times? What are we going to do next? <laughs> There's a whole lot more than just singing, though that will be a very, very important part. God hasn't told us everything. He hasn't even begun to reveal all that we're going to do there. He's giving us just a glimpse and rightly so. Listen to these words because now we see through a mirror dimly Someday we're going to see clearly our little finite puny puny minds can't comprehend it all. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 2. He's speaking of himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, 14 years from the time he's penning this epistle, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know. In other words, the vision was so real, so powerful. He said, I don't know if, you know, the Lord took me there in a vision or if I was literally physically there. That's how real it was. In either case, God knows such a man was caught up 
to the third heaven. So here's our three heaven slide, as I call it. Paul was suddenly caught up into the third heaven, which goes past the blue sky, next slide, goes past the blue sky of Earth's atmosphere. It goes past the second heaven of outer space to the very throne room of God, the home of God, the place where God is today. Furthermore, he writes in verse 12, in verse four of that, of chapter 12, that he was caught up into paradise, paradosis. So again, a term that carries over from Old Testament paradise, Abraham's bosom, we study that. It's also used of the new, uh, the place where people are today. I was caught up into paradise and I heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, unlike these modern pretenders, and that's what I call them, they're liars. Let's just be truthful. They're liars or they are deceived. And all the popular books that they write who claim to have had this sensational trip to heaven and to enlighten you so you can buy their book. Paul didn't even see what he is describing. All he did was hear it. And it was so powerful, God said, you can't write about it. So what makes me think that these new Johnny-come-lately people can write about heaven when Paul wasn't able to write fully about what he had seen? Because again, God would not have them. He's describing heaven in a way that we can absorb what we can absorb. Trying to describe heaven in our fallen, finite bodies, though we've been born again, would be like trying to describe my first driving experience to my dog Speckles. Or it might be like trying to describe humility to a Clemson fan. It's just impossible. You can't do it. But notice here in verse 2, this place is called the holy city. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Please know, this New Jerusalem is not like any other city. There's no politics here. God is over it all. And everyone present is in a glorified body. And unlike our cities that seem to be just corrupting week by week with growing violence, which God said is what will happen at the end of time. It's not that we shouldn't do everything in our power to change it, to fight it. I'm going to go down with a fight. But I understand that there's coming a time where you cannot reverse what will happen to a nation when they suppress the truth of God. And it's not just happening to America. It's happening all across Western Europe and other nations of the world. And so you're afraid in some places to go out at night. 28 cities characterized by violence and lawlessness and murder, as they reported last week. No such things in this place. No corruption. And so when Hebrews 11 describes a man like Abraham, he desired a better country that is a heavenly one, a place that God had prepared. And when those people thought about it. Remember, they were nomads. They wandered and wandered and wandered and lived in tents. And they sought a place where there would be safety and consistency and joy and fellowship. And the wandering would stop. And so we are going to a city that is secure, where there's warmth and joy and, and peace and love and the Lord himself the place that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 14. And remember, this is just the capital city that's going to sit on a new heaven and a new earth. Reading further into verse 2, this place is called a holy city, notice, as a bride adorned for her husband. 
Now, the word adorned is the Greek word cosmeo. It means to decorate, to make beautiful, to fix up. We get our English word cosmetics from it. And so we speak of a bride who prepares herself for her wedding day. I do weddings here occasionally. Oh, the wedding's at 2 o'clock. And then the, the director will say, but we want all you ladies here by 9.30. What are they going to do all morning? Well, there's a certain adornment process that's going on. They're preparing themselves. And so God describes this preparation that he is making as a bride adorned for her husband. And so it's appropriate to call it the bride city. And so it's magnificent. In essence, when it comes down out of heaven, God is shouting, here comes the bride as it sits on this new earth. And the bride city is indeed appropriate because Old Testament saints are described as the bride of Yahweh, Jewish people, and Gentile proselytes who believed in the God of Israel. And the New Testament church is called the bride of Christ. And so this is the bride city. Now, if you've ever married off a daughter, I was blessed to marry just one off. But my, it was expensive. You know, I had no idea. I had married some sons already and have married a few more sons after that. But a bride, wow, it is expensive. But God will spare no cost. He will do whatever it takes to make this place beautiful. You know, my wife for years has had these butterfly gardens where she grows these, I call them butterfly plants. Gary could tell you the technical name and uh, at Baker's Nursery and where we get these plants and, you know, these monarchs come and they go through that whole process as a worm to a chrysalis and then they break open and when they break open, we love it when we get to catch them and you can hold them and set them on your nose or on your head for your grandkids and, you know, do a little show and... And you look at it so up close, and it's so magnificent how God, with all of his detail and precision, like paints the wings of a butterfly. You look at a magnificent rose and its design. God, in all of his wisdom and all of his power, is creating a city and a new heaven and a new earth that is absolutely breathtaking. So let's go to the third point there on your outline. Heaven also, notice, is a pleasing place. So unlike the current earth and heaven that is passing away, this current heaven is going to be permanent. And unlike this earth that is fallen and corrupted by sin, this is prepared by the wisdom and power of God, and therefore heaven is a pleasing place. Look, if you will, now at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So following this initial revelation God gives of the new Jerusalem, John writes, I heard this loud voice coming from the throne of God. You see that in a number of places in the Revelation. And he's giving a very interesting description of the very throne room of God. Think about the various dwelling places of God in Scripture. Initially, you meet God walking among men with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was magnificent. Certainly, it was not simply the luscious fruit or the perfect weather or the effortless work that made it so great but that God walked with them in the cool of the day. It was the highest privilege someone could have, close, intimate companionship with the living God. Then sin entered into the world. 
And that was sadly lost. And so the Bible now describes us as coming into this world as being physically alive, but as being spiritually dead. And so God fulfilled his command to Adam, from any tree you may eat, but if you eat from that tree, the day you eat from it, you'll die. And so he instantly died on the inside. We are now born dying on the outside, and God wants to fix the problem. And unless it's fixed in your life, you will never have any meaning. Some of you are listening to me. You may be in Graniteville and Gray's, and you're empty on the inside, and you don't know why. It's because you need to become rightly related to the Lord again. You must be born from above. You must have this second birth. So initially, you see God walking among men in the cool of the garden. Later on, we discover that God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle, and later on in the temple as he filled with his presence the holy of holies. Still later on in John 1:14, you know John 1, the prologue to the gospel, the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, and then he says, and the word speaking of Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when it's important, where there's a a nuance in the Greek that's important for us to understand, the NASB will typically put it in the margin. So if you're in John 1.14, you should circle the word tabernacle, because it says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He literally pitched his tent among us. By the way, if you're trying to help Jewish people, you should pray and care about Jewish people and don't write them off as unbelievers. When Israel was founded on May the 14th, 1948, there were three born-again Jews in all of Israel. Today, it's estimated there's over 30,000 born-again Jews. I've been privileged in my life to lead five Jewish people to faith in Christ. But one of the big showstoppers is the Shema, hear, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And so for a Jewish person, that's something they recite every Sabbath day in the synagogue. For a Jewish person to embrace what we call the Trinity, a term not found in the Bible, but adopted in the second century, and a good term to describe the triunity of God, they think that as Christians, we worship three gods and that we are really idolatrous in our view. But you can take them without ever going into the New Testament, just to Moses and the prophets and demonstrate the triunity of God. Not only do you have in the opening verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Barashit, in the beginning, Barashit bara Elohim, in the beginning created God, Hashemayim v'yed ha'aretz, the heavens and the earth. It's a plural noun, God plural, with a singular verb. In the beginning, God plural, singular verb. Even in the opening verse, the triunity of God is affirmed. Let us make man in our image. Now, Rashi, a famous 12th century rabbi, said, well, that was God working with the angels. The angels weren't anywhere present at this point where they are involved in the creative work of God. Angels can't create, only God can create. That's God speaking, let us make man in our image. But let me share with you some verses. This would be helpful to jot some of these down, to show a Jewish person, or for that matter, a oneness Pentecostal like T.D. Jakes and his followers. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. I hope you know that. 
That's why he's a prosperity theologian and he's ripping people off and he's preaching another Jesus and another gospel. But we live in a day when people don't even know the Bible and they lack discernment. I'm not saying all Pentecostals, just oneness Pentecostals or a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. They all deny the doctrine of the Trinity. But let me just focus on if you were sharing with the Jewish people. Jot down this verse, Exodus 40 and verse 34. You can demonstrate from the Torah and from the prophets that God can dwell in two places simultaneously without ceasing to be one. Moses wrote this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord Yahweh filled the temple. And then in the very next chapter, now remember we got chapter and verse divisions, we even have scroll divisions, but Moses wrote one long big book and so in the next scroll as it was started, he writes in Leviticus 1.1, now the Lord, same word, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him where? From the tent of meeting saying. So God is in the tabernacle. And then in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God says, moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you, same Hebrew phrase for God walking in the garden with Adam. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So God lives among his people in their tabernacle and yet Moses goes on to write in Deuteronomy how God is living in heaven above. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 26 and verse 15. Moses prayed, look down from your holy dwelling place from heaven and bless your people, Israel, and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as you swore to our fathers. So according to the Torah, God has two dwelling places at the same time. On the one hand, he is inhabiting the tabernacle. At the other hand, Moses is praying up to him in heaven. They don't believe from these passages, Jewish people, there's two gods. They affirm that God is one. Likewise, in 1 Kings... Solomon dedicates the temple. Remember, they go from a tabernacle, which is like a tent structure, though it is called the temple on one occasion. And they build a more permanent structure called the temple. David says, I'm living in the house. God's living in the tent. This doesn't look right. And of course, he ended up through Solomon, his son, building the temple. And so we read in 1 Kings 8, and it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, this is dedication day, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand a minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then in verse 12, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I've surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And then in the same moment he prays, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven. That's when people lift their hands in Scripture in prayer to God. He spread out his hands towards heaven, and he said, Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping the covenant and showing faithfulness to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. So according to Solomon, God dwells in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but throughout his prayer of dedication, he's praying to God in heaven above, and there's no contradiction of God's oneness. And so God 
tabernacled among us in animal skins. We're in Israel on one occasion because we went to Petra. We're in a section of Israel we don't typically go to, and, and there was a tabernacle. I mean, it was an exact replica. These Messianic Jews had built it as a testimony of preaching to their Jewish neighbors of, of what Messiah would accomplish. And there was a house of skins that God dwelt in. And it's no different from John 1.14. When God comes in, he indwells in human skin. Once again, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. That's no different from what Moses taught in the Torah, where God can be in two places simultaneously and still be one God without any contradiction whatsoever. Now, today, Christ obviously is not literally physically on the earth, and today, God is not dwelling in a temple made with human hands, but He is dwelling in human bodies of people who have been born from above. Under the Old Covenant, God had a temple for His people. Under the New Testament, the New Covenant, God has a people who are His temple. We are the temple of the Lord, Paul will write. Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now back to verse three. That was an important aside, an important rabbit trail, and I hope you, you absorb some of it. Listen to verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, underscore that, and he will dwell among them, underscore that, and they shall be his people and he himself will be among them. Now, right now, as born-again people, we've been made alive, we're indwelt by the Spirit, and we are able to worship Him whom we cannot see. But it's going to change dramatically, according to verse 3, because we're promised, and God Himself will be among them. Now, we can't fully understand it right now as to what it's going to be like, but somehow, the triune God will be present with us in the same way He was present with Adam and it will happen in a new universe with brand new bodies in a new city, and we will have physical access to God in the Spirit and through His Son. And in eternity, if you, don't, if you know Christ as Lord, this is something you have to look forward to, to being in the very presence of God. I hope you understood, if you've been with us in this series, the presence of God in the future will be the chief terror for the unbeliever. For those who know the Lord, it will be their chief delight. So there in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see your glory. Our eyes will see him, our ears will hear him, our hands will behold him, and this is what will make heaven, heaven. Going to heaven... Without the Lord Jesus being there would be like a bride going on her honeymoon without her groom. It'd be like building a house to move into as a new married couple and your husband wants to live in another city. No, the focal point of John's whole description is this new Jerusalem, the bride city, where the bride of the Old Testament and the bride of the New Testament will be. Behold, he goes on to say, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and he himself will be among them. Uninterrupted, eternal fellowship. That's why I say this is a pleasing place. And notice, described here in verse 4, um, there's a, a time where there's no eternal sorrow. There'll be some initial sorrow, 
You say there'll be some initial sorrow? Look at verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Paul describes the judgment of the just, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. It's a very sobering reality. Most Christians are very flippant about the fact that as redeemed, saved people, that they will give an account for how they have lived in these redeemed bodies. You know, we're down 30% in worship today. Why? Because there's an air show going on. I have no problems with people going to the air show. I'm sure we had more than 915 service because of the air show. It's a great thing to go to. But there are some parents who sent a message to their children this morning that the air show was more important than gathering with the people of God and worshiping the living God. And that's going to be implanted in the hearts of some children. Imagine if all our nursery workers said, oh, there's an air show, Randy, I can't come. And as every week God brings unchurched people and they come and there's no place for their child, why, because someone had to go see the air show. Listen, at the judgment seat of Christ, Paul describes that people will suffer loss. And so God, he doesn't use some unnamed angel, it's very personal, God, even through our disobedience and compromise, will himself wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, these are not tears of repentance. No one can repent in heaven. This is over. This is done. The judgment has already taken place at the end of chapter 20. But we can say that we will never shed another tear of mourning or pain or sorrow, which is contextual. It doesn't mean that we'll never shed another tear. In fact, I suspect in heaven, our tear ducts will work perfectly. Some of us can't cry when we need to. I was on the phone this week with a tough, strapping young man, and he wept and I wept with him. Some of us think we're too cool not to cry. But when we see the glory and splendor of heaven, we will probably shed tears of joy. Now notice, this place is so different. He has to give four no-longers to further describe it. He says, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the Bible tells us that God kept his promise You shall surely die. They died that day. But in heaven, there will be no more death. Not even the skin cells in your body. I saw some ad on the internet this week about how my mattress has 50 pounds of skin cells in it. I said, that's disgusting. I guess I should burn this thing. Not even skin cells will fall off your body. No weakness, no disease, no aches, no pains, no decay. No coffins, the funeral homes will be out of business. Where we're going, there's no mental asylums, there's no triage, there's no prosthetics, there's no braces, there's no hospitals, there's no emergency rooms. It's a magnificent place. And the reason for this, John tells us, no longer even any pain. This is the last time pain is even mentioned in the Bible. Some of you are sitting here this morning with pain in your body. No longer any pain. Why? 
because the first things have passed away. In other words, the old order is now gone. The old way of life, the old earth, the old heavens, it's obliterated. This is a new Jerusalem sitting on a new earth. It's really the great magnificent reversal that God's going to bring about. No death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. It will all pass away. You say, this just seems too good to be true. You know what they say about things that are too good to be true? They're too good to be true, depending on who's doing the same. And so God wants to underscore who's doing the same. Look at verse 5. It's like the Spirit of God anticipates someone's reaction. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right For these words are faithful and true. In other words, you can count on this because my promises are faithful and they will all come true. Listen, most people love to move into a brand new home. Someday we're going to move into a brand new world. And this brand new world will be absent of all of the problems that we see. Death will be a thing of the past. There'll no more be any crying or sighing as we know today. And God who is faithful and true, says this. Now, heaven's a permanent place. This earth is not permanent. Heaven is a prepared place. It has to be prepared because this world has fallen. Heaven is a pleasing place. Notice also, four in your outline, heaven is a purified place. Heaven is a purified place. Read now with me in verse six. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, the one speaking is the same person who's on verse in verse 5. This is God the Father who describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And by the way, in chapter 22 and verse 13, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. Why? Because they are equal. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he says, I am the alpha, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the omega, that's the last letter. I'm the beginning and the end, I'm I'm from the A to the Z, you could say. In other words, if human existence and human knowledge and human history somehow are an alphabet, I am the alpha and the omega. There's nothing before me and there's nothing beyond me. And then to those who are thirsty, they are given a promise Without cost, notice the spring of the water of life. And of course, he's not describing physical thirst. He's describing spiritual thirst. Remember the Lord Jesus in John 7, now on the last day of the great day of the feast. If any man is thirsty, spiritually speaking, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then John parenthetically adds, these things he wrote about the Spirit who was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. God the Father, who's inseparable from the Son, inseparable from the Spirit, makes a similar promise. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. You could render it as the Net Bible free of charge. You could put it as a gift, Dorian. You can't pay for this. It is the gift of God. You cannot buy eternal life, and unless you humbly receive it, you'll never come to this place. But God is saying every thirst, every need, every desire is going to be satisfied from the depths within. It's all going to change. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. 
He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He who overcomes, if you were with me in my series on Revelation, God uses that phrase eight different times. Overcomers, to distinguish not a victorious Christian from a Christian who's not victorious, but to distinguish believers from unbelievers. Because in the truest sense, every believer, biblically speaking, is an overcomer. You're not saved by overcoming. You're not saved by persevering. But if you are saved, you will overcome. You will persevere to the end. Listen to what John writes. Put out next to verse 7, 1 John 5, 4 and 5 in the margin. Let me read you that verse. John will write in his first letter, for whatever is born of God, or literally begotten or born again, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So this promise is not just for some spiritual elite person. This is for every child of God. He who overcomes will inherit these things. An intimate, close relationship where you will receive the living water from the living God and the deepest depth of your soul for the first time. We've got just a down pause, down pause. We have just a pledge of what's to come. You're going to experience fully what God has for you. Now, by contrast, look at verse 8. But, you should circle that. What a distinction this little word, but, makes. Because everything from verse 1 through 7 is glorious, but now comes the distinction with this little conjunction. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He is contrasting those who practice the sins of an unbelieving world who will be excluded from the new Jerusalem, whose destination is the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. These are not overcomers. These are people who are overcome by sin. And the world, well, they consider us today as losers. Wasn't always that way in America, but now we're the losers. But in the end, very sadly... It will be the unbelievers who will be seen to be the true losers. God speaks of them as cowardly. People who are afraid to take a stance for the Lord. The person who refuses to truly believe, which is the mother sin in this whole list, I suppose, will be cowardly. Which is why Jesus said, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Why? Because they're more interested in what the world thinks about them, what the unbelieving world thinks, than what God thinks. Also here in verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable. The word abominable means to pollute. And indeed, because they've indulged in sin and wickedness and rebellion, their mind, spirit, and body is just characterized by pollution. Notice further, they're called murderers. The word that is used here is described of someone who premeditatively takes an innocent life. And yes, that would include the abortionists. And then he adds immoral persons. It's the word pornos. We get our word pornography from it. It would include not only the adulterer, 
extramarital sex, the fornicator, premarital sex, the homosexual, the transgender, the rapist, the pedophile, the male prostitute, the movie producer who, who paints these things before the eyes now even of little children. You know, it's sad where our government is. Our government is saying last week that, you know, preachers like me, and it's coming, especially if we come to this point where we have digital money. And we're probably not far away. But preachers like me who would speak against homosexuality and transgenderism, that we're doing these people harm. And they say that transgender people are committing suicide because of things that we're teaching. Hey, listen, if you're transgender and you're homosexual and for some reason you've stumbled on this broadcast, you're welcomed here. But I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is, just like the fornicator and the adulterer who may be heterosexual, your homosexual sins are also evil and they need to be forgiven and you need to repent of it. And the one who's causing people to commit suicide are those people all the way to the highest office in the land who say, this is a good thing, I've got your back. They are denying the way God wired a person, and that's why they're so confused. And they're going against their very spiritual DNA, and they're taking their own lives. Then he adds sorcerers. It's the word pharmacos. We get our word pharmacy of it from it. It's the drug abuser. And what is happening through our southern border is just so sad. Young people taking some drugs that are milder, not knowing that they're getting fentanyl. And of course, uh, the illicit use of drugs is in mind here. And even in the first century, people who worshipped using drugs. Remember in Ephesus? Those were such people. But when they heard the gospel and they repented and believed, they took all of their magic arts, which would have included pharmakia, illicit drugs to worship their false gods, and they destroyed them, they burned them. That's what repentance does. Then he mentions idolaters. John, in his first epistle, describes idolatry as something or someone that you put above God. Murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, and then he adds, in all liars. And he will elaborate on that in 22.15 by saying, everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, you're probably thinking, Pastor Carl, you've just condemned an awful lot of people to hell. Look, I didn't condemn anyone. I'm just repeating and explaining what God said through John. However, every one of us is here somewhere. The point of the passage is not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The point of the passage is that everyone is guilty. Everyone is headed towards hell. And unless you repent, you perish. Unless you call upon Jesus in faith to save you and begin to change you, you won't make it. Your destiny will be with the rest of these in the lake of fire. And again, unbelief is the mother sin of it all. A refusal to bow to Jesus is Lord. Finally, heaven, oh, two more, very quickly, I'm out of time, but I'm just going to touch on them. Heaven is a priceless place. Heaven is a priceless place. He says here in verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, if 
you remember, there's sealed, trumpet, and bold judgments. This is one of the seven angels who have one of the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. He came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He's describing this city as the bride. It's an interesting description. If you go to buy a house today, typically beforehand, you can see it. You can look at some magazine, some computer site. You don't even have to go to Google Earth anymore. You can uh, go to the local real estate agent, and he's got his little drone that flies over and shows you who's living next door and everything else. And, and what John is doing here, or what he's experiencing here, is an aerial view this angel is going to give him an aerial view. Of, we haven't even gotten in heaven yet. We're just looking at the outside this morning. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the 11, seven last plagues came and spoke to me. And he takes him up on this mountain and he gives him a picture of what is going to happen. Again, we read earlier in uh, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride. So question is... Is it the people who are called the bride or is it the city? And the answer is yes, <laughs> because they're inseparable. The bride of Israel, the bride of Christ are in the bride city. And really you can't separate the person from the place. You know, a church burns down and some pastor's being interviewed on TV and he said, well, we lost our church, but the church really isn't the building, it's the people. They're doing the same thing. That's what John is doing here. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out from heaven. Now let's gain some, again, geographical and contextual evidence. Chronologically, this happens after the millennial reign. Again, the millennial reign is over. The, the great white throne judgment is over. A new heaven and a new earth suddenly appear because the old heaven and the old earth disappear. Again, this is not some fixer-up plan. And he's carried away in the spirit, geographically, somehow to a high mountain because he wants them to get this overall magnificent picture of what it's like. Verse 11, as he watches it descend, it's characterized as having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So here he is on top of this high mountain, and he sees it glow with the glory of God, having the glory of God as, he's using a simile here. Now, sometimes jasper is used literally, physically, but here is a simile. In other words, it, it's so brilliant, so glorious, he takes one of the most beautiful stones he can describe, and as it's light fragments, he sees this glorious picture beyond what he could have ever imagined, reflecting the glory of God. John will later write in the Revelation that the new Jerusalem itself won't even need lights because God's Son will light it. Finally, heaven is a priceless place. I mean, a private place. Not only is it priceless, it's private. Beginning now in verse 12 through 14, he gives us a few design specifications, again, from the outside. Let me just read those. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, I think it's significant that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written here. 
and the names of the 12 apostles are written here. One representing old covenant believers, Jews and proselytes, Gentile converts, and the other representing the New Testament church. And again, this is the final nail in the coffin of those who embrace covenant theology who say the church has replaced Israel. God has given an eternal declaration in the capital city of how he worked through Israel, and by the way, how he's going to work through Israel in the future. It's beautiful. There's coming a day when Jew and Gentile will be together, all the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints, as one big family. And if this bores you, it concerns me. If it bores you, you should take a hard look inside. Because you could run into a sign that says, private, no admittance. It's not by accident that he describes these 12 high walls with these angelic beings guarding it, as if to illustrate that unless you are a member, you cannot come. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father in the new Jerusalem, in the Father's house, but through me. And if you don't receive Christ, I can promise you if you die that way, you will even remember this sermon and this preacher and this pulpit inviting you this morning to call upon him. You receive him, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. You reject him, and you will spend an eternity of regret that you can never, ever change. Our Father, we thank you that you wish none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Help someone this morning within the sound of my voice and simple childlike faith to call upon Jesus. Thank you that whosoever will may come, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Lord Jesus, you said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Father, as I preach, you are seeking someone today. And I pray in simple childlike faith that they would receive the water of life without cost. Thank you that you made it available through the blood of the cross. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. Our Father, we look at this world and it seems to be decaying and it seems to be in a downward spiral. But we thank you that this is not our final home, that we are just passing through as aliens and strangers that you are coming back for your people. But until you do, may we be faithful stewards of the gospel to tell people how they can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. If you have a public decision, you might be in Graniteville this morning. You might be in Grays. You might be here. But you've never confessed Christ openly and publicly since you've received him. Since you've come to that place of assurance, you may be here and you've never been baptized as a symbol of your faith, or you've been saved, you've made it public by baptism, but you need a church home. I want to give you that opportunity as we sing this hymn, you can leave your seat and meet someone in one of these three auditoriums down in the front. Would you come now as we sing?